Well, it's nice to be back after a couple of weeks being away. We were up um, speaking at Wellsford and also in Whangarei, and a couple of lovely churches up that way. You wouldn't have wanted to be in the car with us because we were sick like many of you, coughing and splattering and carrying on on the way up. But the Lord was faithful. I didn't lose my voice. Um, today we're going to look at a, a subject that's obviously dear to my heart, but I haven't spoken on it for a while um, here, which is missions. Missions. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Matthew chapter 9, and verses 35 through 38. Let me ask you before we read it, as you look it up, do you have a too hard basket? You've heard of a too hard basket, right? I think my email inbox is my too hard basket. I notice that certain emails fall to the bottom. They just kind of slowly work their way down there. Sometimes it's because it's an email that's just way too long. And I, I start reading it and I'm like, oh, I'm not dealing with that. <laughs> I don't want to read, the way, read all my way through it. Sometimes it's to do with something that's someone else's responsibility, but I still have to read the email. And I think, no, I'm not going to read that just now. Uh, sometimes it's, some, it's something that you get an email and it's a hurtful email and you think, mm, I can't deal with that either. I'll just let it fall down to the bottom of the, the pile. It's interesting that what comes with a too hard basket is a vague sense of guilt. Because I'll, I'll scroll down, feel bad, scroll back up again. Scroll down, feel bad, scroll back up again. Vague sense of guilt. Interesting, as we look at the issue of the unreached, because I think one of the biggest two hard baskets that we have as Christians is this vague mass of people that we refer to as the unreached. And I'm not just talking about uh, unreached overseas, although I'll probably spend most of the time talking about that, but we have unreached people here. And God is bringing them to us. People who don't have a chance yet to hear the gospel How's the vague sense of guilt? Is it in your too hard basket to think about that? Well, in our passage today, Jesus sweeps away the fog. He shows us how he feels and he shows us why. He shows us the size of the task and he doesn't mince his words. And he shows us what we can do about it and he commands us to take action. Let's look there and read together. Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray together. Father, we want to open our hearts before your word this morning. We want to be obedient listeners. We want to understand all that you have for us in this passage and we want to act in the way that you call us to. Father, please help us to focus. Help us to hear what you have to say to us. And Lord, please help me that I can bring this message across in a way that's honouring to you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 
as with every passage, this falls into three points. <laughs> we see that Jesus felt compassion, real compassion, that he faced the facts, and lastly, that he factored in his followers. So yeah, every passage can fall into alliteration as well. <laughs> Let's look at the first point here. He felt compassion. Verse 36. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's interesting as we look in verse 35 that Jesus went around, uh, went throughout all the cities and villages. This is in what's called the imperfect tense in Greek, which means continuous activity in the past. So speaking of Jesus' habit, his continual practice was to get around these places and teach and preach the gospel and heal many, many people. This was his habit. And as he repeatedly bumped into these crowds that he met, these Jewish people, many of whom he just healed, many of whom he just taught, he felt something. They were people who had mostly yet to believe, and many of whom, most of whom would never believe. And we see a familiar reaction from him. It says he had compassion for them. Compassion. He was moved with compassion. In the, 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 the Hebrewism that's used there is speaking of his bowels being moved. Doesn't sound very nice to us. His bowels or his kidneys being moved. It's a sort of gut compassion. And it's interesting in the uh, theological dictionary of the New Testament, Helmut Kostler compares the compassion of the heart, heartfelt compassion to that gut compassion. And he says that the term used here is the more blunt, forceful and unequivocal term. There's nothing vague about it. He felt true, raw compassion for people around him who did not know him. And this interesting, the interesting fact about this, this compassion is that when it speaks, and when Matthew speaks of Jesus feeling this compassion, this gut compassion, it always moved him to act. Always. In uh, chapter 14, verse 14 of Matthew, this is what he felt for the chronically ill person. So he healed them. He acted. In, in chapter 15, verse 32, this is what he felt for the crowds who had so wanted to hear his teaching, they forgot their lunch. So he fed them. This is what he felt for the two blind men in Jericho who cried out to him in chapter 20, verse 34. So he opened their eyes. He acts. This raw compassion always moved him to action. And we're going to come back to that later as we see how he acts in this, in this passage. So this is what he felt when he saw the unreached. And the reason is because their current state their current state. It says because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless is a vivid picture. It's literally torn and thrown down. Torn and thrown down. It's usually spoken of of an animal that can't protect itself that's being ravaged and it's lying just waiting for its fate. It's the end for them. There was no one to protect them. It's interesting, Annie and I have discussed this a lot because my, my sister has sheep and they're a particular kind of sheep that don't meet, need much looking after and they get so wild that when they want to herd them onto a truck at the, at the end of their time when they're big, they wear helmets because the things jump around and, and butt and so on. And we thought, 
I thought sheep needed a shepherd. And then I realized the other day as I was thinking about this, New Zealand doesn't have predators. Well, it has me because I really like lamb. But, <laughs> but our sheep don't have, don't have predators after them. You remember David's stories in the Old Testament? What did he have to kill to keep his sheep safe? The bear, the lion. So to be a sheep without a shepherd in that context was a pitiful and a terrifying state for them to be in. It's a sad thing to be a sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament, this was often used figuratively to speak of a lack of civil or spiritual leaders. Civil or spiritual leaders. And what's really interesting, and I'm sure you've noticed it as you read the Old Testament, is that when they had a godly leader, how did the people go? They went pretty well, didn't they, when they had a godly leader? And yet when they didn't have a godly leader, what happened? The people went back to their idols. And you see that cycle happen over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And yet all the way through, God gives little snippets of hope talking about a time to come when they would have a real shepherd, when they would have a godly shepherd, a divine shepherd, a good shepherd. Ezekiel says in chapter 34, I'll just read it to you, he's just torn apart the shepherds for not caring for his sheep. And in verse 22 he says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. David was long dead when Ezekiel was written. This is speaking of the Messiah, the descendant of David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. This is the shepherd that they needed. Jesus Christ. And without him they were torn and defeated and utterly lost with no means of escaping the great danger they were in. The people that we see around us are enslaved to the world and the flesh and the devil. And it's so interesting listening uh, as we were singing just then and looking at these words. Do you ever think what it's like to not be able to sing that? To not have the Lord as your shepherd? To be utterly enslaved to sin? Many of us have been saved so long we've forgotten. It's not an easy thing to live without Christ. And we were never meant to. We were never meant to. Someone who doesn't have him doesn't even realize they're provoking God with every breath they take that rejects his authority and his love for them and is reaching out to them. And yet, they look to all the world as if they're fine. And sometimes we get sucked into that, thinking they're okay thinking they're doing fine. Well, they're not. They're not. And it seems that they want to declare to all the world that they're fine. How did Jesus see them? Harassed and helpless. How do we see them? Does it move you to compassion? What's amazing in Jesus' words here too is that he's speaking of the one people group on earth at that time whose whole culture was built on top of his revealed word, the Jewish people. They were certainly compromised, but they were people who had tremendous benefits, temporal benefits, to being a nation where God's word has taken root at some point. 
And I think we would say that about our nation, wouldn't we? There are tremendous benefits to us from living in a nation where the gospel has at one point taken root. Annie and I were privileged to meet a guy called David Catchpool when we were in Indonesia. He was a secular scientist. He now works for Creation Ministries International. Um, But we were surprised to find he speaks Indonesian because he's married an Indonesian lady. And he was a secular scientist living in a place called Makassar, which is down the bottom of the island where we live, Sulawesi. And it's fully Muslim. And most of the way up through that island is fully Muslim until you get to the province where we live, which is a, a Christian province, one that's mostly nominal these days. And when he was a, when he was still a pagan, he drove up, which would have taken him a few days. And he got into, to Sulawesi Utara, the northern part where we live. He got there and he said, if I ever choose religion, I will choose Christianity. Because as he drove up through that godless area and got to a place where the gospel had at one point taken, point taken root, he saw there was a huge difference. A huge difference. And I think to some extent we forget that in our own nation. So thinking through that and thinking through the fact that Jesus saw these people as harassed and helpless because they didn't know him and yet there was so much around them that was great because of the the influence of the word of God, try and think about what it would mean to live in a place where there's never been any gospel influence ever. What that would mean to the culture. Often we think of people as backwards or stupid or why would they do that? And we don't realize that it's been pure grace, pure grace to us that we have a different society. This is why we see um, oppression and injustice and apathy and corruption. It's where the word of God hasn't touched them yet. It's where the word of God hasn't touched them yet and it's so sad to see. We've seen a number of examples uh, in the Tugutil tribe. Um, We have a book about how they came to Christ but before that point, the missionaries shared with us that if a Tugutil lady was pregnant with twins, they had to do divination to decide which of the twins was an evil spirit and that baby was left out, just left out. They wouldn't kill it. They would leave it out to die. And listen to it crying and crying and crying until it passed away, purely because they are bound up in satanic lies. The Taliabu people, when I go there, I sat with a, a bunch of men from there and they, they told me, we were so stupid. We were so stupid. We used to put food on a plate and we'd put it up in the rafters and then we'd bring it down in the morning and, if, and the food always moved. It moved. And so we'd look at where it moved and we'd decide that that was speaking to us um, giving us portents for the future and things like that. And he says, now that we're Christians, we look at it, up at it and we can see the reason it's moving is because the rats are eating it. We're so stupid. And you know what I tell them? We're stupid too. We're stupid. Do you know what? We're, our country is throwing away God. We're throwing him away. And we believe that people came from smaller life forms. And we believe that a baby inside its mother is not yet a living being. We believe stupid things because that's what Satan does to people. He makes us stupid. Some of, us, some of you will have heard the story I've told about the Salawan people in central Sulawesi. I'm sitting talking with these guys and I'm just joking with them and I tend to joke a bit much and I thought a guy was going to tell me off. He says, wait, 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 wait. And I thought, oh no, I've, I've joked too much. And, and he says, isn't it great that we can laugh? I say, say that again. 
isn't it great that we can laugh? Before we had nothing to laugh about, our life was absolutely miserable. They, they dealed with terror of the demonic forces around them. Many of them lived with possession. They said every night someone would be crying. Every night someone would be laughing a maniacal laugh. We were terrified. This is what it means to live in a place where the gospel hasn't touched. It's a sad thing. And you know the greater fear? Of course I'm talking about all the temporal things. The greater fear, of course, is when this miserable life comes to an end, the worst is yet to come. And they never got the chance to hear the way out. They're sheep without a shepherd. And I think as, as Christians, as we look at this issue of compassion for people who don't have a chance to hear the gospel, is often we bat it away with our election bat. You, do you have an election bat? <laughs> I'm a Calvinist, I have an election bat. We think if they're elect, they'll be okay. And so we don't feel compassion for them. We don't want to look. Let me ask you, was that Jesus' attitude? Jesus was the only evangelist ever to know who the elect were. And how did he feel? His heart was filled with compassion. Filled with compassion. So how do you feel? Is it in the too hard basket? The I can't deal with that right now basket? Or do you want to follow the Lord's example when you look at people around you who don't know him and feel compassion for them? The second aspect I want to look at here is that he faced the facts. And the cool thing about Jesus is that he only ever deals with facts. Uh, False news doesn't elicit a response from him. From us it elicits a response, right? You might get all wound up about something and then find out it's not even true. Or you might get all compassionate about something and say, why don't I get compassionate about that? For It wasn't even true. Well, with Jesus, he only deals with facts because he knows it all. And the fact that he says there in verse 37 that he tells us or tells his disciples is the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And this is interesting because he uses exactly the same words in Luke 10 where he's talking to the 72, where he's sending them out. Exactly the same words. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And that fact is actually true today and truer than it was then. One thing I, I've been interested in for a number of years now, I guess about 12 years, are statistics, mission statistics. And there are a number of good sites, and I tend to look for only the best sort of sites because, you know, statistics can lie. But these are, these are, actually, these are real ones. Um, and there are a number of sites that will say a very similar thing. Let's look at the size of this harvest. The harvest is plentiful. Uh, in our world today, there are 16,591 people groups. It's a lot of people groups. So a people group is a distinct language and culture within a group. The unreached amongst those, the word unreached here speaks of people that are less than 2% evangelical Christian. Less than 2%, so they could be no percent, they could be 0.5%, anything up towards 2% is called an unreached people group. Someone that has virtually no chance of hearing the gospel. Out of those 16,000 people groups, uh, 6,741 are unreached. That's 42% of the people groups on the, world, on the earth are unreached. 
no chance of hearing the gospel. Unevangelized people groups, uh, where there are just over two percent Christian, but or evangelical Christian, but very few, very few Christians amongst them. That's two thousand seven hundred and ninety-two people groups, eleven percent. So over half of the people groups in the world right now have little to no chance to hear the gospel. The harvest is plentiful. Plentiful. When we talk about people needing the Bible translated, there are 2,500 people groups that need a Bible translated right now. There are people groups where the language might be dying and things like that. That's not counted in this. 2,500 people groups don't have the scriptures. Can you imagine what it's like to live without the scriptures? I've seen people groups where they have maybe one or two letters from the New Testament translated and they go round and round and round on those letters, loving them but wishing they had more. The harvest is huge. And what we often see too is that this is a harvest that longs to hear the word of God. We initially, when we went to Indonesia, wanted to go to the Asmat tribe on the south coast of West Papua because they were asking for missionaries to come. Do you know they asked from 1996 for missionaries to come? Some of you, I'm guessing, weren't born in 1996. They were asking for missionaries come to come. Have you guys, you know, as you've met Christians, how many of you, put your hand up if you've had a Christian come to you and say, could you please tell me the gospel? I'm not seeing any hands. I've had that happen twice in my Christian life since 1984. I've had someone ask me to tell them the gospel. We have people groups asking for the gospel and they have to wait 20 years to hear it. So in the Asmat tribe, there's just missionaries building their houses in there now, praise the Lord. But they have to wait. The Dem tribe, uh, we were we were a little bit interested in this tribe. At one point they said, if you come to our tribe, we'll give you land, we'll bring the wood, we'll help you build your house, please just come. The Dao tribe, when they went in there and, and finished learning the language, the missionaries said to them, how often do you want us to teach you? Do you just want to teach you once on Sunday? They said, no, we want to hear it every day. Every day. And these are not long lessons, uh, not short lessons. These are like one to two hour Bible lessons. And they wanted to hear it every day. People being hungry for the word of God is something that weighs on your heart. My longest sermon is two hours and 45 minutes. We went to the Taliabu tribe where they have 40% of the New Testament and very little of it printed. And, and I spoke at a, at a leaders conference there. And I wanted to sit down after an hour and they said, you can't sit down, keep speaking. I'm like, okay. I'm speaking in Indonesian being translated by my friend um, who's, who knows their language. And after the next hour, they said, nope, keep going, keep going. Surely you've got lunch to go home to or something. (laughs) Two hours and 45 minutes. And they were still wanting to hear because they're hungry for the word of God. They're not spoiled with the word of God. They're not waiting for the sermon to be over. They want to hear new things from the word of God. We don't realize how good we've got it. But the sad thing that Jesus said here and the sad reality in our world is that the labour is a few. The labour is a few. Worldwide, the total missionaries, coming back to the statistics, total missionaries are 400,000. 309,000 of those go to the reached people groups. 
77% of missionaries go to reached people groups. To the unevangelized, that's the more than 2%, but very few Christians, 19.4% go to them. To the unreached, 13,315 missionaries, and that's 3.3% of the missionary force goes to the unreached, those who still need to hear the gospel. If we want to talk about local workers, that's something that's a topic and again one that's dear to my heart. The total local workers, and I guess that that includes pastors in any country, is 5.5 million in our world today. 4.19 million of those go to the reached, the reached people, 75.9%. To the unevangelized, 1.3 million, which is 23.7%. To the unreached, 20,500, that's 0.37 of a percent of workers go to the unreached. The harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. The ratio of Christian workers to unreached in an unreached people group is one Christian worker to every 216,000 people. One Christian worker to every 216,000 people. In an unreached people group, the ratio of Christians, evangelical Christians, to unreached people is one or two people to every 100 unreached people. Do you know what the ratio is in New Zealand? One evangelical Christian to every five people. Media doesn't tell us that. Did you notice that the media constantly has us thinking we're a tiny minority that that's opinion means nothing? One to five. One to five. Now, I believe that God is the one who calls. And I believe that we have needs in New Zealand. And I love it that we're working to bring people to Christ here. That, that's absolutely crucial. So please don't misunderstand me when I'm talking about these statistics. But let me say that if someone comes to you and says, I want to be a missionary, please don't compare the needs here to, to the needs of unreached people groups. There is no comparison. There is no comparison. If I could put a human face on this, I when I first got to Indonesia, we heard about this man called Derek Grant, and he would, he's no longer on our field, and he gave his life to... to do survey work throughout Papua province. And I thought, this is going to be the coolest, you know, guy to talk to. And I read a, I saw a survey report come through in my email from him, just a new survey that he'd done in some area. And he's talking about how, you know, he'd met these people and they were asking for the gospel. And he got to the end of his survey report and it just cut off abruptly. And he said, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep going to places where they're asking me for the gospel knowing that there's no one to send. I can't do it anymore. And as I said, he's left our field. We were recently on the island of Seram, some of you all notice, looking at unreached people groups there and getting excited with the way that the Lord was opening the doors through the relationships that we were making with the people around there and thinking there is really an amazing opportunity to come and bring the gospel to people who have no chance to hear it here. I came out from Seram and got a note from the field committee saying, we currently have two people studying language up in central Java and Salatiga and both of them want to be pilots and we have no one talking about coming to the field. 
This is how it is. I went to one uh, nominally Christian province where there are very few believers and uh, there was a guy talking to me about the fact that he's worried about Muslims coming and basically they're people being won over with money or won over with force. Um, and he said, what do we do about it? And I said, what, what would you think if your children actually embraced Christ personally, loved him personally, was saved by him personally and didn't just come to church because it was the, the thing to do? You know, this guy jumped out of his chair, jumped out of his chair and said, that's what we need, that's what we need. When are you going to send someone? And my face went red because I knew no one was coming. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, appallingly few. The last um, point that Jesus raises here is that he tells us what to do. He factored in his followers. Verse 38. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So remember when I said earlier that Jesus' compassion in this book of Matthew, his heartfelt compassion, gutfelt compassion, always led him to act? Who's he asking to act here? He's telling his disciples to act. He's telling his disciples to act. You and me. And he says here, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. This word for pray here is the word beg. It speaks of praying from the heart. So as you look at these people group, as you, as you, as you stop putting them in the too hard basket, as you, you look at their needs, and particularly their need to hear the gospel, and that brings out compassion in your heart, don't push it back down again. Let it drive you to pray from your heart, to plead to the Lord, to plead to the Lord. And you know the beautiful thing about prayer is that anyone can pray, Right? Anyone can pray. Children can pray. God loves to hear the prayers of children. Adults can pray. People who can't do much else anymore can pray. I have a picture somewhere here of a friend of mine in Indonesia. He's now gone to be with the Lord. I think it'll be the next slide. He's the, the father of a friend of mine who's, who grew up in the Stone Age. He was in the Dani tribe. You might have heard of them in Papua province. He grew up in the Stone Age. He couldn't speak Indonesian. He could only speak the Dani language. And at this point in his life, he was down living in Sintani, basically isolated, living with his son. And do you know what he did with his life? He woke up in the morning and he ate and then he prayed. And then he came out and he ate and he prayed. And he'd go back and he'd pray and he'd pray and he'd pray because he wanted to use what was, re- what was left of his life to pray to the Lord. Anyone can pray. You know, some people come to me, it, it often happens when I've done a missionary message, and they say somewhat apologetically, I'm sorry, all I can do is pray. And I always, it's the Kiwi in me, I get this little sarcastic smile, at the little twitch there. All you can do is pray. All you can do is speak personally to the only God who can motivate workers and drive them out, to protect them and provide for them, to work through their ministry so that the Lord draws people to himself and transforms their lives. That's all you can do? I think you're doing pretty well if you can do that. Prayer is an an awesome privilege, an awesome privilege 
And in this passage, it's a responsibility because it's a command. And it's an urgent command in the Greek. We need to pray. We need to pray. The next interesting point is that he doesn't say, pray so that God will write the gospel in the clouds. Pray so that someone will put put a witty meme on Facebook and lead this people group to himself. Pray so that someone will have enough money to put a gospel blimp up above people that will drop tracts on them from time to time. He says, pray for laborers. Pray for laborers. God presents his gospel through humans. He always has. And until that last day when an angel gives a final warning, he always will. God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. In Romans 10, 14 and 15, says that people can't call on God, they can't believe in God or even hear about him unless someone is sent to preach. God uses people. And just as a side on this, to reach the unreached requires long-term laborers. Long-term laborers. Jesus said that if we are to make disciples of all nations, we do that by going, baptizing, and teaching people to obey all that he has commanded us. That takes time. It takes time. Paul's charge to his missionary co-worker Timothy was that he entrusted all that he had heard which was pretty much everything Paul had said, entrust that to people who would then become the teachers, people who would then become the leaders. takes time. And in most places where people desperately need to hear the gospel on this earth, people need to learn at least one other language to take that gospel to them. These things take time. This is not to discourage short-term missions or humanitarian work. There is significant and really helpful scope for short-term work in English-speaking areas. And most of those will involve uh, supporting or training an existing church in some way. And if the Lord wants you to do that, that's fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And I'll be cheering for you and praying for you. That's brilliant. Humanitarian work. You know, sometimes it's become a bit of a byword amongst gospel teaching uh, churches, but it's not. We are to love our neighbour as ourselves and this is a very important ministry to, to share what we have with people in a humanitarian way, our way. It's beautiful as long as they get the gospel, right? As long as they get the gospel. So I don't want to make out that, that long-term missions is the only option, but when it comes to reaching the unreached, we're called to make disciples. And we're called to make the word of God available. And we're called to thoroughly train leaders. And that means that we need people who would devote a significant chunk of their life to do that. We need long-term workers. Interestingly, the word here for sent out is the word ekbalo. Matt uh, was talking about a little while ago. It means to literally throw out. Balo from ballistic and ek from out. To drive out. This is the word that's most often used of exorcism to drive out a demon. It's the word used when Jesus put together a whip and drove people out of the temple. To drive people out. Talk about a calling. We see in Acts 8 that uh, people were driven out by persecution and they shared the gospel. But mostly it's speaking of an internal desire, an internal conviction that turns into a willingness to actually go, 
But God never calls people who are worthy. He never calls people who are worthy. And sometimes when we begin to feel that conviction, we begin to sense that desire, we think, I could never do that. I could never do that. Well, let me dispel a few myths. I think uh, then the next, it's the next slide from this. A few myths about missionaries. The first one is that missionaries are not just church planters. There are many deacon roles in missionary service. Our role in itself, we are not church planters. We're teaching others to do those things. We have accountants on our field that are, that are just tremendously important. We have people that care for children and help with education on our field. Tremendously important. Ways that can keep the church planters where they are. There's lots of opportunities for deacon roles. The next one is that missionaries are not extraordinary people. And having known many missionaries and being one myself, I would say that we're pretty ordinary at times. People that God uses so that he's glorified. We're not people who like to travel in general. One of my pet hates is traveling. If you know me well, you know that for years I struggled with being terrified of flying and yet I had to do it every month. People often say that when you know you become a missionary, they say, oh, you like to travel, and it's like, <laughs> that's not what it's about. People who like adventure, no, that's not what it's about. Talented language learners, no. Some of us are talented, but most missionaries are average language learners. We have a, a dear friend who is completely deaf. He wears hearing aids, but I don't know why. <laughs> because the only way you can get through to him is to yell, and that's probably why he has the hearing aids on. If you yell at him, it gets his attention, but then he reads your lips. He has come to be a missionary, and he's learning Indonesian by lip reading. And it's taken him years, but he's come because what? Because God has driven him to do it. He's put in him that desire to help reach the unreached, and he doesn't need to be talented to do it. He just needs to be willing. So, just in closing, please don't put the harvest in the too hard basket. Please don't put the harvest in the too hard basket. There is a harvest right outside your door. Right outside your door. And they're waiting. And you are the labourer. You are the labourer. If you guys don't quite know how to start a conversation, don't quite know how to share your faith, there's guys like Jeremy and Maria and different ones here that can really help you with that. Ask them, they'll they'll help you. But don't put it in the too hard basket. Pray for workers, for the unreached people groups, the huge harvest that are waiting for the gospel. Pray for people who will be willing to lay down their lives. If someone says to you they want to be a missionary, stand behind them, encourage them, tell them it's a great thing. Pray for them. Talk about the real picture, the real picture of where needs are. And if the Lord is at work in your heart and he's tugging at your heart to say, hey, maybe I could do that, let's talk. Let's talk. I would love to discuss that with you. Let's pray together. Father, you're the Lord of the harvest and we're your servants And we're your subjects. And Lord, we want to be like you. We want our hearts to be shaped like your heart. We want our hearts to feel the compassion that you felt 
and that you feel for people that have no chance to hear your word, that have no shepherd to watch over them, that live without the gospel, that live without your faithfulness, that live without your love, that live without your forgiveness. Father, please drive us to prayer. Drive us to prayer, Lord. Drive us to action, Lord. Help us to see what you would have us do as we feel your heart. Lord, I I thank you for this congregation and I thank you for their love for you. And Lord, I pray that in this, you would be at work in all of our hearts to change us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.